Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, said, uh, when are you going to finish running the race? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. We're having to wait and see what the Lord has in store for us as we begin to just go uh, exegesis, amen, just looking through the text. And here's the thing I want to continue to remind you of, guys. For the past seven weeks, we've looked at two verses in Scripture. Just two verses, right? We've been going through and dissecting the verse little by little. Uh, last week, we kind of talked about, you know, for the joy that was set before him. We talked about that joy, how, you know, how the psalmist says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And so this morning, um, if I was to give it a title, it would be the cadence of peace. So the cadence of peace. And so if you don't know what a cadence is, you think about when someone is running, usually they have a cadence. They have some type of rhythm. They're trying to keep in step. And if you've ever had the opportunity to go and be with someone who they're graduating from the United States military, I highly encourage you, if you've never been to a graduation ceremony, go to it. Um, because to see those men and women who serve our country graduate, my brother served as a Marine, and I remember going to, going to Paris Island and watching him run and hearing them say, you know, they would say, one, two, three, four, United States Marine Corps. I mean, that's what they would do, literally. Uh, they would run around the entire ground singing that song as a rhythm. And you would hear them say things that were very strange, but to them it meant something because guess what? They had to find something. Listen to me carefully here. They had to find something that would take their mind off the pain. So whatever that rhythm was, whatever that song was, whatever they were really running in rhythm, guess what? They would find something to sing about, something to remind them of, hey, guess what? We're going to get through this because we're all going to get through this together. And how powerful a cadence can be. And so our cadence is a cadence of peace. And so I want to remind you of that as we begin to look at this last little bit of Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're going to focus on that last little part this morning, once again, looking to Jesus, right? The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So when we think about enduring the cross, we've got to think about what is the way of the cross. Because we are very different than most Christians before the cross, in a sense. Why? Because in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the Messiah. In the New Testament, we look back at the Messiah, right? And so if you think about the, the major point in all of Scripture that we can all kind of agree on is that the cross kind of separates the two. The cross itself really kind of ties up the old and begins the new and we see that the, the cross itself is a way, that oftentimes whenever Jesus was talking about it, he would talk about, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so you would oftentimes, even in the book of Acts, if you've ever done study on it, they accused Christians back in the early days of being a part of, guess what, the way. They would say, you're a part of the way. That's how they were known, the way. Why? Because, guys, Christianity is very, very controversial. Why? Because we believe in one way. We don't believe in multiple ways. We believe in that one way, and that one way is through Jesus. And Jesus' way is the way of the cross. 
the way of the cross. And this is kind of troubling and kind of different. Why? Because people don't think, well, you know, that, that sounds real difficult. Because it is. So you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now I want to caution you right here. Whenever the text says he emptied himself, that doesn't mean that Jesus became less God. It doesn't mean that Jesus became less of anything. It means by taking on man, he emptied himself. Because that's the thing. By taking on man, he emptied himself. That showed just how far he was willing to go to be with us, that he became flesh. So therefore, it says he emptied himself. I don't you think of him emptying himself as him losing anything, because he didn't lose anything. He maintained everything. Because remember, like we've said over and over again, Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. You cannot separate them and say, well, he was all man and no God, or he was all God and no man, because the Bible speaks over and over again that he was full of both. Full of both. You see the power of God in his life. You see the Spirit working through him when he raises the dead, calling Lazarus forth from the tomb. You see his humanity when he's on the cross, and what does he say? I thirst. You see the struggles of the man and the struggles of God, not the struggles of God, I should say, but you see God in him and you see the struggles of man in him. You see both of those at work. So look what it says there. Therefore God has highly, or sorry, let's go back to verse number eight, sorry. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You know this verse, amen. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know what's amazing to me? How many times we want to skip the cross and get to the crown? How many times we want to skip the valley and get to the mountaintop? How often we want to skip the bad seasons of life and just get to the good seasons of life. But if you've seen many winters in life, you know the only reason those good seasons are good seasons is because you've been through bad seasons to get there. It's only because there's bitterness that there's sweetness. It's only because there's that suffering, there's that agony that therefore he was highly exalted. You see, guys, the path to glory, the path to God, the path that God would have us to walk is through the suffering of the cross. And many people in today's day and age, if you go to churches all across this great nation, we preach on everything but the way of the cross. Why? Because it doesn't draw people. It does not draw people. When you talk about the way of the cross, you talk about suffering for God, especially in American, in American Christianity. It's so far from what we want to do. But yet it's the path God has called us to walk. Think about that phrase, Have that mind among yourselves which was in Christ Jesus, that humble servant willing to do whatever it took to honor the Lord. Even willing to die, and not only just willing to die, but willing to die on a cross. Willing to die the most unimaginable death anyone could imagine. He was willing to do that. And he did it, why? Because that's what God called him to do. Being obedient even unto the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. The cross unites us. 
Everybody in this room, you are united thanks to the blood of Christ, but you are also united through the cross of Christ. So you see this here in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 38 and 39. Um, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the cross unites us. Whoever who wants to find his life, you've got to lose it. And if you lose it, guess what? You find it. And so you think about how countercultural that is in our day and age when everybody's like, hey, you need to find yourself. You need to find yourself. You need to go somewhere and discover who you really are. Let me tell you this over and over again. I've been beating this drum. But you are the best version of yourself when you are less like yourself and more like Jesus. Because you're fully the human God designed you to be when you're a complete rhythm with the Spirit. So you become the best version of yourself, not when you're full of yourself, but when you're empty of yourself and you're full of Christ. So when he says there, he talks about whoever does not take his cross. We've all got a cross we've got to lay down. We've all got a cross we've got to pick up. We've all got a way of suffering that awaits us. And we do everything in our lives to bring comfort when the vast majority of Christians around the world, they do not ever think about comfort. They think of obedience. And they're willing to obey no matter how much comfort it costs them. Because guess what? They've chosen the way of the cross. They've chosen the way of suffering. One of my favorite moments in The Promise with Mayfield if you never went to see that play, I highly encourage you to do it, is when that one lady gets up and sings about the way of suffering, the way of the cross. And to think about how that's the way that Christianity relates to back in our history. We related to, guess what? You're going to suffer. There's going to be a counter-cultural battle. There's going to be times where they don't like us. And yet in today's day and age, we often forget that our message is controversial. They forget that our way is not easy. But we also forget that our way is the only way that leads to life. It is the way of the cross. It is the way of Christ. You know, I know some of you are duck hunters. Let me say that. Your duck hunters are not duck killers, amen. Uh, I do know that for a fact. Some of you, you go duck hunt. You never have ducks you kill. You just go hunting, amen. We're going with the boys, cooking bacon. Uh, but it's, it's amazing to think about those ducks and think about those geese and to think about why they fly in a V. Now, many people don't know this. Maybe you do, maybe you didn't. But they fly in a V formation, not because it looks pretty, But they fly that way because, number one, God designed them to be that way. But number two, because those ducks and those geese have learned, guess what, they can go a lot further with together than they could by themselves. And so they fly in that V formation, believe it or not, because they are drafting off each other. And the lead duck or the lead goose that's leading, amen, maybe it's a mother goose, amen, Uh, you know, dad joke there, Uh, you know, whoever it is, that lead duck or goose is plowing the way through the air and cutting the air in such a way where the ones directly behind it have an easier way of going because that one is the first one through the wall. And here's what's happening that's amazing. You'll see that as that one gets tired, he, will, he or she will automatically drop to the very back where there's least resistance. And the one in the next slot will fill that position and they will begin to fly even more strongly. It's estimated 
on scientific standards that they fly 70% further together than they do by themselves. Upwards of 70% further than they could by themselves. And to think about it, if you didn't know this, this is where it's really mind-blowing. The ducks and the geese have it so much down that they've even calculated out that when they flap their wings, the one behind them will flap their wings at the exact same time so the air goes directly over one's back to another one. Isn't that mind-blowing? Because they've, they're united into where they're going. They're united in their mission. They're united, why? Because they're following the leader. You know, the great thing about the one who's leading our charge, he never gets tired. He never gets weary. And so the thing is, Jesus is never going to ask us to do something he himself did not do. So think about it. You might think, you know, Jesus is asking a lot of me because he already did it. I love what also Hebrews says, we do not have a great high priest who does not know us, amen, who is not acquainted with us. We don't have a God who's very distant, ladies and gentlemen. We have a God who's near. We have a God who has the very hairs of our head numbered. We have a very personal God. And so because we have a personal God who personally was wrapped in flesh, who personally came to dwell with us, who personally decided to literally step out of heaven's throne room down to the very, very creatures he came to save, not only to be among them, but be a part of them. And to think about how that victory formation is what we fly in today. How we are following his footsteps. You know, we used to sing a hymn, Footsteps of Jesus. I'm not going to sing amen. This church is empty, amen. But you know what the words used to say? You know, that make the pathway glow. You know, we would sing those over and over again. Why? Because we truly are following in the footsteps of Jesus. And let me tell you something, everybody knows the footsteps of Jesus end up in the tomb, but hardly ever do we ever talk about how the footprints of Jesus lead to the cross. Lead to the cross, or you've got to, guess what, you've got to lay your life down. And say, it's not about my life anymore, it's not about my, my values anymore, it's not about me anymore, it's all about Jesus. Because you know what you know, what I know if you're here today and you are a member of our church, if you're somebody here and you says, I've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you believe that thing, if you believe that statement of faith, if you really truly believe that and you bought into it, then you have laid aside every desire and want you have that's contrary to scripture and said, I want to do things God's way. I don't want to do things the political way, I don't want to do things the American way, I want to do things God's way. And if you do things God's way, guess what? That unites us because we have a common mission. We have a great co-mission, which is to make disciples, to share the gospel. And to think about our leader is not your pastor, amen. Our great high priest, our great shepherd is Jesus. And once again, he never tires, and he never gets weary, and he's always taken the blunt of the load. So that me and you can stay in step with him. So let's look here at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I mean chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You know what folly means? It means foolishness. Let me tell you something. Christianity to an onlooking world seems like madness. Guys, I want you to think about this. We believe in a God who came and died for us. We believe 
that when we take of the bread, we remember his broken body. We believe when we take of the juice that we are remembering the blood that was shed for him. The early church, guess what they were thought of? They thought we were cannibals. Because we were always talking about gathering together, eating body, and drinking blood. And those Christians were weird. And then in America, we're not for potlucks, amen. But back in the early days, guess what? They acted so differently in the culture they lived in. People thought they were weird. So Paul writes them, the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen to that. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discern the discerning. I will thwart where there is one who is wise. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since it is the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what to preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles. Guys, we preach a crucified Savior. We don't preach, you just do better and start being a better person and you change some habits in your life and then you'll go to heaven. No, we preach Christ crucified. We preach that you could not work your way to God, so God worked his way to us. We preach that we could not hope to change our lives, therefore God has to change us, therefore that changes our lives. We preach Christ crucified. We don't preach an easy believism. We preach a gospel that says, come and lay down and die with me. We preach a gospel that says, your old life is gone, your new life is beginning. We preach a gospel that's controversial. And let me tell you something, if we change our gospel to gain the generation, then we've lost the gospel and we've lost the generation. Guys, we don't gain the world by lowering the bar of Scripture. Some of you need to hear me say this. We can gain people in this room by us lowering God's bar, but then it doesn't become God's bar, it becomes our bar. And I'm not qualified to save anybody. I don't know if you are or not. Actually, I do know you're not because you're not. So it's not my bar to lower. It's not my bar to set. It is the way of the cross. And we preach Christ crucified. We preach it all day long. And about to those who call both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man. I want you to think about this. On God's worst day, he's still smarter than us on our entire best day. I want you to think about that. God didn't have bad days. But his wisdom far exceeds any of our wisdom. You know what's something baffling to me? How much scientists come back now and say God was right in the first place. Like it baffles me. Some of you believe in a flat earth, amen. You need to get saved. Uh, Because let me just tell you the gospel truth. It talks about in the Psalms the earth is a sphere. Before they ever discovered that, guess what? God knew about it. God wrote about it. God told them about it. God knew gravity. He talks about a plumb line from heaven. Guess what? A plumb line's never wrong because of gravity. All of these things of science, let me, let me tell you something. Biblical Christianity and science can confide in the same space. Why? Because they both support each other. Did you hear me say that? So scientists are not our enemy because, let me tell you something, science, in the most part, unless it's some crazy human who doesn't have science degrees, or doesn't know what he's talking about, comes alongside the Word of God and says, it's all true. It's all true. 
And it's amazing how there are people still among us who are the wisest of the wise, but guess what the Bible calls them? Fools. The Bible calls them fools. Why? Because they overlook the entire forest by looking at the speck of a tree. And God knows that speck of the tree better than they know the speck of the tree because God made the speck of the tree. You know, the Bible says about wisdom, if you want wisdom, pray for it. Some of you think, man, I don't like to read. You read your phone. Pray for wisdom, church. Pray for God to reveal things to you. If you're struggling reading your Bible, I encourage you, there's some things you can do, but ultimately, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God to open your eyes? Isn't it amazing how when Paul gets saved, he goes there in the temple, he's there for a couple days, and it says like scales fell from his eyes. He'd read those things his entire life, but guess what? When he got saved, he saw those things with new eyes. Because we have to look at culture with a Christian worldview. We have to look at our society through a biblical worldview. Guys, we have to not take things to the Bible and say, can I make the Bible make my opinion make sense? No, we take the Bible to our lives and say, can I make my life make sense to the Bible? That's what we do. We don't twist Scripture. We go to Scripture and say, what does God have to say? What does God have to say? But you know the bad news? The bad news is, as much as we preach Christ crucified, as much as that unites us, as much as we are like geese in a formation, amen, some of you are going to hung up on geese for days. As much as we're like that, the gospel unites us. I do not want to paint you a picture that's not true because the gospel also divides us. The gospel also divides because the cross also divides. In Matthew chapter 10, I read those last two verses, verse 38 and 39, but I did not read the first couple verses because I want you to understand this. In Matthew's gospel chapter 10, this is the first time the cross is mentioned by Jesus by verb. This is the first time Jesus says he's going to the cross, right? He talks about the cross. In verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the world. I have come, go back to, I have come, not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are thinking, I didn't need that Bible verse. I already have that, amen. (laughs) And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why don't you read that, church? Read that again. Put it in your memory. And a person's enemies will be in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. How's that for a sermon series, amen? And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now before you run to the bank with that, let me explain some things to you. How can Jesus say that he's come not to bring peace but a sword? How can he say that he's come to divide. Because once again, the cross divides people. You know, at the end of the day, many of us, we will suffer for our faith, but not in true suffering ways. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, you know what happens when they say they follow Jesus? They lose their entire families. Their entire family says they're dead. And most of the time, they are thrown out of their house And most of them will never, ever get to speak to their family again. Why? Because the cross has divided them. 
It's divided them. Can you imagine this morning the Afghan church and the way they woke up? The people knocking on their doors. Can you imagine the daughters and sons that were drugged before those terrible people who were doing wicked things to the church over there? Can you imagine that mothers and fathers turned their own children over and said they believe in this Jesus? And they should be killed for it. Because let me tell you guys, let me tell you this. I, I mean this as truthfully as I can possibly utter it to say you. That if you think it will stay over there and not come over here, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. We are living in a post-Christian world. The culture itself is not for us. I want you to hear me say this to you, church. The culture itself is not for you. It's not. So there's going to be more division and more division. You know what I do know? I know this from just my 30 years of living. 20 years ago yesterday is a very different nation than 20 years ago today. Very different nation. And that's in 20 years. The amount of change we have seen. The amount of things we've gone away from. How September the 12th, 20 years ago, was such a day of unity. 20 years ago. And to this day, we look everything but like the United States of America. And some of you have hope, and I, I think we should hold on to hope. I think we should do everything within our church's power by voting, I think we should exercise our right as American citizens every way we possibly can, shape, form, or fashion. Do not get me wrong here. But I will tell you this, we are fighting against a big tide that we cannot overcome because the culture doesn't want to. And some of you have learned, you don't talk about Jesus with your family because you'll, you'll, it'll cause conflict, won't it? So that's why he says here, he says, it's going to bring a sword. It's going to divide people. It's going to happen. That last little bit where Jesus is explaining, whoever doesn't love me more than his mother or his father, whoever doesn't love me more than his sons and his daughters, he's not worthy of me. What he's getting at there is we should love Jesus in such a way that it looks like we love him far more than anybody else. That the love we have for our Savior should be so much more than the love we have for our own family. Because at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say this to you, it's very hard for some of us, even myself, I struggle with this. Our family is not the reason you're going to heaven. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So you should love him in such a way that, guess what, it causes other people to think, man, he's just madly in love with Jesus. So it should seem that you love him more than anything else. You know, I'm really mowing over with the Lord what to preach about in our next sermon series. And I've really been wrestling with it. I've been thinking about spiritual disciplines because we need spiritual disciplines, Amen. I've been thinking about family worship. 
And think about family worship. I asked this question to our D group the other day, and I just want to pose it to you because I do think it's so critical. If you asked your little boy and your little girl, if you asked them, what does daddy love the most? I wonder if Jesus will be on that list. Ask them, don't coach them. Don't say anything to them. Give them a blank piece of paper and a handy-dandy notebook, amen, with three lines, one, two, three. Who do mommy and daddy, what do they love? What do they love? They might, possibly, hopefully, they would say, me, you love me. Mommy and daddy love me, right? I would dare say many of those wouldn't even be on that list. But I wonder if they put on that list, your children. Because they're watching us. They're watching you. When you pick the ball games over the church, guess what? They see it. When you pick that event over being with the house of God, they see it. They hear you say, you know, we can go everywhere else, but we can't go to church. They hear it. And it should not surprise us today when an entire generation grew up with a mom and dad taking them to the church but never being the church. You get the products we have today. You get the products we have today. You know what's amazing? I mean, I'm, this is just a little preview, amen. It's free. A little preview. If we, if we do our family worship series, and you'll hear me talk about it later. It's amazing to me that when Abraham goes to kill Isaac, when he has Isaac, literally he's about to go kill his son because God's commanded it of him. I want you to think about that. God's commanded it, and, I, and he's going through with it. What's amazing to me is that Isaac knows they don't have everything needed for a sacrifice. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but he tells his dad, Father, I see the wood, and here is the knife, but where is the lamb? The only reason Isaac knew a lamb was missing because he had seen his father make sacrifices. He had seen his father lead them in worship. He had seen it. So he knew when someone adding up. But I wonder if we asked our children what we worship, what they would say. I wonder what they would say. Because ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you this over and over again. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom this morning, but I'm telling you, if the foundation is not set, if the foundation is not laid, we will lose them. And once you lose them, some of you know, got older children, you can't get them back. Now, thanks be to God, you can pray and God's Spirit can work in their lives supernaturally and pull them back. But those stories are far and few in between. Far and few in between. Because the cross divides us. The cross does divide us. Pastor Nick, you said this is the cadence of peace. And you're just talking about division, 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 and multiplication and division, amen, and fractions. We mean cadence of peace because we do walk and run by a cadence of peace. In Ephesians 6, verse number 14, look what it says here. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the cross unites us. The cross divides us. But let me tell you something. The gospel brings us peace. The gospel brings us peace. Why? Because, guys, let me tell you something. 
if we're united with our family but divided from Christ, we've lost. I want to say that to you yet again. If we're united with our families on all their views, all their culture, everything else, but we're divided from what Christ has said, then we've lost. But since we're united with Christ, you know what we have that other people don't get the luxury of having? We have peace. We have peace so we can stand. Why? Because we have peace. Should the things we see on the news worry us, bring some anxiety? Absolutely, we're human. But at the end of the day, you know what we know? Christ wins. You know, I know without a shadow of a doubt, come what may, guess what? We're still going to sing. If they make it illegal to be a Christian in these United States, I promise you, we'll still gather. You might not be here. I love you. But guess what? We'll still gather. It might be in somebody's basement, amen. It might be with a candle in the Word of God. It might be in secret church. It might be in the underground church. But guess what? The church will live on. Because the church has lived on. Rome is a footnote in history. But guess what? The church is alive. Let me tell you some People everywhere across this great globe, which we call home, have tried to stomp out revival, tried to stomp out the Spirit of God. And guess what we have? We're like a grease fire, baby. The more you try to shut it down, guess what? The higher it rises. Because it's not us who's bringing revival. It's not us who's going to turn the tide. It's the Lord. It is the Lord. We have a gospel of peace. Let me tell you something. Some of y'all, y'all got confused, and I want to say this to you because I love you. You've thought that we just be mean and attack each other, that we'll win people. I'll just unload on them. I'll win them. I'll get mad. When I don't get my way, I'll punch them. You know, I'm going to take up arms and fight. Let me tell you this. That's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of the cross. The way of the cross, you know what it says about Jesus? He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Why? Because he brings drastic transformation, not through violence, but through grace. And we've forgotten that. Some of you are getting riled up thinking, we're going to do all this, we're going to do all that. Let me tell you something. Violence is not in the kingdom of God. It's not. You know how we get to heaven? It, you know what it says? You get there by your violence. No, it says you get there by the word, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Our testimony is what? It's in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone. I know that's a very, very weird message in this Livingston County where there's more guns than people, amen. But I say this with all due respect, you don't win people by fighting them. Go back and look at ancient history, go back and look at modern history. Martin Luther King, he walked arms and arms with people, didn't raise a fist, didn't punch anybody, didn't do anything. Why? Because he understood where he was He was walking in peace. Do y'all get this? He was walking in peace. He was walking in peace. Now, don't you hear what I'm saying, what I'm not saying? What I am saying is we should walk in peace. What I'm not saying is if somebody breaks in your home, you don't jack them up. 
You have the right to defend your family. I 100% believe that. I believe that's a biblical principle. You defend your family, amen? Somebody breaks in your home trying to do you violence, you do violence to them to make sure they don't do violence to you and your family at that end. But I don't go looking for violence. That's the difference, church. We don't go looking for it. If it finds us, guess what? We're ready. I love what the, I think it was, was it Roosevelt who said, speak softly and carry a big stick? That's truth. But we are, should be known as people of walk in peace. Anybody know what this is? What's this? Anybody know? Peace sign. Peace sign, right? So if you remember back in the day, you know, doing this. Peace sign, right? Believe it or not, the origins of that sign were not peace. They weren't. When this hand gesture first came out, the meaning of it was not peace. It wasn't. Do your research on it. It was victory. Winston Churchill, the guy who we talked about a couple weeks ago, he was getting photographed, and guess what he did? V for victory! I swear, this is a moment in history where he went V for victory and put up his peace sign, put up a hand signal that guess what said V for victory because we are going to see victory. We're not going to make peace, we're going to see victory. Guys, I want you to understand me here. We can walk in peace because we've already won. That's why we can be peacemakers because Jesus has already won. That's why we can tell people, guess what? That's how we can act in the way we're acting. Why? Because we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. Guys, I need you to get this. We're fighting from victory. If we already know you're going to win, guess what? It changes how you play. Because you know you're going to win. And the church can be at perfect peace even in the day and age we live in. Why? Because we've already won. We've already won. You know why over in the Middle East, moms and dads can look at their children and say, I'll see you in eternity because they've sowed the seeds of the gospel and because they have not renounced the, the cause of Christ because they refuse. No matter come what may, they are not going to deny Jesus. You know why they can look at those little boys and girls before they're about to lose their life and say everything's going to be okay? Because Jesus made everything okay. Jesus made everything okay. Because we fight from victory. We don't fight for victory. So we can walk in peace as brothers and sisters. We can walk in peace on a mission to see others experience the victory of the cross. To see others experience the victory of an empty tomb. Because guys, let me tell you something. Our message has not changed. And I say that to you over and over again. If you, say, if you think for one second that our nation has Christian bedrock at the foundation of its founding, you have not done much research on America itself. Because it's been rotted away. It's been rotted away. And I want to encourage you, once again, I'm a patriot through and through. I want to encourage you to remember to truly remember that though we walk in peace because that's our cadence you know what happens when somebody comes to you and says man I'm thinking about unloading on them you know what I'm thinking about telling them like it is you know what you should do have you prayed for them 
That saved my marriage a lot of times, amen. Have you prayed for them? You know, it's, it's impossible to hate somebody if you love them. You know how you start loving people? Start serving people. So you know what we should do as a church? Love our enemies. Isn't that revolutionary? Because when you serve those people, guess what? You begin to love those people. When you begin to love those people, you know what you start doing? You begin to pray for those people. When you begin to pray for those people, God's spirit begins to work. And you know what happens? Those people become part of the family. That's what happens. Several years ago, the early church was getting ravaged by a dear brother. They were getting drugged out of the synagogue, getting killed by a dear brother named Saul. You know, it began to happen. The church began to pray. I firmly believe this. The church began to pray, God, God, truly get a hold of Saul. Get a hold of him, get a hold of him, get a hold of him. You know what happens? He was walking on his high horse, literally, on the way to Damascus. And God smacked him off of it. And God converted him. And that man became known as Paul, who the early church knows wrote half the New Testament. Because they did not fight with violence. Listen to me. They did not fight with violence. They fought with peace. They fought with peace. It didn't say, blessed are the war makers. You know what it says? Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, church. Because we can only make peace because God's made peace in us. How did God make peace in us? Through the cross. Let's remember that. Before you hit a keystroke, before you tell somebody like it is, peace. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus left them, you know what he left them with? Peace, I leave you. Peace. And we have peace because there's a great victory. I love you. I love you, church. Let's come pray together for peace. Peace through victory. Won't you come? Won't you come? Every head bowed, right eye closed. Nobody looking around. Right eye closed. Nobody looking around. You give people.